welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro Popinski, and today I'm speaking with Elena Dillon about her memoir, My Body is a Big Fat Temple. The book has gotten rave reviews, including from Amy Schumer, who said, Elena Dillon is one of my favorite writers, and to read her journey through pregnancy is a great joy and heartbreak. Um, I totally agree. This is a um, wonderful book to pick up for um, the women in your life, um, for yourself. I felt like I wished someone had handed this to me um, at my baby shower or even before. Um, it kind of feels like a big sister telling you what to expect, but also laugh out loud funny. Um, that's wonderful. So a little more about Elena. Um, Elena Dillon is the author of Mercy House, a library journal best book of 2020, which has been optioned as a television series produced by Amy Schumer. The Happiest Girl in the World, a Good Morning America pick. My Body is a Big Fat Temple, a memoir of pregnancy and early parenting. And Eyes Turned Skyward, a novel forthcoming fall 2022. Her work has appeared in publications including The Daily Beast, Lit Hub, Wherever Teeth, Slice Magazine, The Rumpus, and Bustle. She teaches creative writing and lives on the North Shore of Boston with her husband, son, Black Lab, and lots of books. Elena, welcome to A Bookish Home. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me and for that very generous welcome. Yes. Um, I was saying before we started, I was kind of looking back at the book this morning, and there's so many parts that I... Um, marked up or kind of had like, yes, with exclamation parts. And so I just remembered sitting on the couch, like laughing out loud, like a crazy person to myself. Oh, so I love so hearing good. that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell the listeners a bit about um, My Body is a Big Fat Temple? And I'm curious kind of what got you thinking about um, writing it? Sure. Yeah. So um, I wasn't feeling the call to motherhood that everyone kind of said would happen, you know, that internal clock starting to tick. Um, but I was in my early 30s. And, you know, biologically, there is a deadline. So um, I started kind of looking to see if there was other mother literature out there, as I often do when I'm like, trying to figure things out in my life and process, I, I turn to books. Um, and I found so this was probably four years ago, five years ago, um, that there really wasn't a lot on the narrative journey of, of becoming a mother. There were a few and I really relied on them. Um, but they were, what I found was mostly kind of science oriented or parenting how to's. Um, so there's all, that old adage for writers, um, write the book you'd like to read. So as I was, you know, embarking on this journey and making the decision to, to start a family, um, I kind of was writing for my own sake to process these feelings and to kind of understand um, what was kind of um, fueling my anxiety and my indecision and like these feelings that aren't really marketed as typical to motherhood. Um, keeping in mind, too, that like perhaps down the line, it could come if, if there was enough material and if it came um if it all came out right that it might eventually be a book um so so yeah that's that's that was the kind of origin story i love that i um i really liked when you were talking about how some women nest by like organizing their spice rack and cleaning their house and you were nesting with any books you could find on um, pregnancy and motherhood, which I can definitely relate to. But it's true. They're really, at least I felt like was having my first, like there just, there weren't that many out there. Why do you think that there is sort of a, you know, kind of a hole there that it's wonderful you've been able to fill, but you would think there'd be sort of a whole shelf of these titles and there really aren't. 
Yeah, I think that's a great question, um, especially considering how universal the experience is, how many readers who are mothers there are. So you'd think there'd be like a huge market for it. Um, I think there's a few reasons. <clears throat> One, I, I think we're only kind of overcoming this obstacle of like silence on motherhood, like that we're not supposed to tell the whole truth, that there's only kind of one acceptable story. Um, I think with, with social media and with just like the general evolution of female characters and um, female pressures that, that we're beginning, beginning to see kind of more transparency and more, tr more truth and kind of real, even fictional female characters coming to life on in books and on TV um, and just in our general culture. So I think there's more permission now to talk about like the more prickly bits of, of pregnancy and motherhood. So I think there's a shift. Um, but I think in the past there had certainly been kind of more of a pressure to, to concentrate on the romantic um, and the curated and like the Photoshopped versions of, of just like joy and nurturing and tenderness um, where of course that exists, but it's not the entire story. Um, and I think a lot of publishing um, is concentrated on sales and especially like the big publishers sales and marketing like who is this going to appeal to and if sometimes if they see controversial material or material that might cause discomfort um, there's some hesitancy to really put money behind it so I think um, it, since there was kind of a stigma and still exists a stigma um, to have you know the unappealing parts exposed that there might have, you know, been some resistance to publish it and put money behind it. That makes sense. Well, it just makes me think how glad I am that this book exists now, because when it is true, when you only see sort of the romanticized version, and then that's not your experience, you know, you feel a little bit crazy. So it's nice to sort of, um, yeah, it's terrifying. Like, then yeah. you know, like you're the only one. And so you might be, must be broken. And it's like, you don't like, you feel that hesitancy to talk to people about it because what if they judge you or think that you're a terrible mother or a terrible woman since like motherhood is the female imperative. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's setting women up for failure. Yeah, it really is. Well, one of the things I thought was interesting, you kind of weave in sort of different research um, throughout um, the memoir and kind of how almost the certain things that we kind of take for granted are rooted in um, different issues that are kind of universal to how women are treated. So like, for example, when you're talking about something I think we can all relate to kind of feeling like being judged during pregnancy of like, oh, is that coffee decaf? Or um, what are you doing about X? Can you just talk a little bit about like sort of the studies you found about kind of the way doctors and sort of the public kind of infantilize women in pregnancy? Yeah. So um, part of, you know, me inhaling all of the, all of this book, these books and materials leading up to motherhood um, included a lot of like the science oriented uh, literature. And in it, I realized and I hadn't really before um, how much funding and research has been denied pregnancy and motherhood. And again, considering how it affects so many people, it's kind of baffling. Um, like the NIH didn't fund pregnancy research until like 2017 or something like with something within the past five years. Um, and 
pregnant women weren't allowed to participate in studies until 2019. They had been included on a list um, of of people who who couldn't um, weren't weren't deemed um, to have the mental faculties to like uh, to accept that risk along with like the, the mentally disabled and children. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, so that, again, that is shifting, but like th- that kind of ideology is just entrenched and you know, like that it's that that's in how we've practiced medicine for decades and decades. And it's going to take a long time for like lifting those barriers to have an effect. Um, so, so yeah, like Emily Oster, for instance, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of her, um, is an economist who reevaluates studies that have been generally accepted in the past, um, to, to check for kind of carelessness or variables, um, that hadn't been included and to, to like kind of reevaluate the results. So a lot of the ones that she looked at were restrictions that were, um, given to pregnant women, for instance, not being able to have caffeine, um, alcohol, uh, you know, sushi, like all, all the stuff that you're not able to eat um, or, or ingest to protect the baby. Um, and she found some really glaring and like laughably glaring um, mistakes. Like for alcohol, for instance, um, she found that those studies didn't di- differentiate between drinking in moderation and binge drinking. So it was just like having alcohol or having no alcohol. Those were like the two differences. Um, and so people like babies that had, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome, you, you couldn't really tell if it was a person who had a glass of wine, you know, once a week or whether they were drinking all the time. And so that's just like, that's just care, like a careless study. Um, and they also didn't discount for other drug drugs being incorporated. So like she found that, you know, 90% of the participants in one study had also consumed cocaine. So like, you don't know if, if the, the damage to the baby was from the drugs they were using or the alcohol. And so her kind of takeaway there was that it was, it's just easier for people like giving this advice to tell women to abstain completely than to like really look for nuances and to give directive advice. Like, saying one glass of of wine a day is safe. Um, and there's this kind of like distrust given to women. Like um, even my doctor said to me like, well, if we say, if we tell a woman she could have one glass or one serving, you know, maybe she'll say, well, like a bottle is a serving. Like, you know, like, and it's just crazy because it's like, well, why do we assume that women can't make responsible choices and care for ourselves? Like we would never say that to a man. And in fact, we don't like when things include both genders, we are specific, right? Like when we tell a person, you know, how much alcohol they can consume before getting behind the wheel, we have it down to the blood alcohol content, you know? So like with, with pregnancy, it just seems easier to ask a woman to abstain from pleasure or to suffer than to like really put in the work to kind of sift through the data and get hard, concrete information. Um, And I think that extends to, you know, morning sickness and other kind of like discomforts that women endure during pregnancy. And there are, there's like a buffet full of them. Um, It's just like easier for the medical community and to like our culture in general to assume that there has to be, that they're going to have to endure some level of discomfort than to really find out if there's a way to ease that comfort and make their quality of life better. Like I had 
um, morning sickness, the, the, and like for my first pregnancy, I'm actually pregnant now and due in June and it's, um, been much, much worse. And so, um, I have relived all this frustration, which is probably why you hear this passion in my voice. Um, but like so much, um, of the time I would tell my doctor and they would like assure me, I'd be like, well, the baby's safe, you know, the baby's fine. And I'm like, yes, but what about me? Like mm-hmm. I have been suffering for seven months every day. You know, like what about my mental health? Like that, that can't be good for me or the baby to like have undergone kind of a traumatic experience. And, you know, if like, why haven't we made the effort to find out what is safe medication to make the mother happy? These are the parts I was like frantically underlining in (laughs) here. And like, just, I think it makes women feel so seen, like you sharing that very like personal experience just gives us the sort of like, oh, me too. And I, um, when you're talking about sort of the whole feeling that, you know, the medical community sometimes only cares about the baby, I was sort of underlining again this morning where you're talking about um, when you're getting discharged from the hospital and you write, I'm a breathing bruise and still can't walk without fainting. So they just discharge me in a wheelchair, which makes me think, you know, I can't walk and you know, I can't feed this child. You kind of shared some of the difficulties breastfeeding, which was also so helpful. Um, And you are pushing us out the door, do the right thing, man, let us live here, which is funny, but also, and then like later you say six weeks, that's how long the medical community lets a woman go without checking on her postpartum. It begs the question, who exactly did they care about at these previous appointments? If post-delivery, I'm cut loose. It's sort of like, I felt that so distinctly and yeah, kind of shocking, like, really. Like, prenatally, those appointments are out of control. Like, like, like I, right now, I'm at the point where I have to go in every two weeks. And then towards the end, it's every week. Um, and then, you know, when the baby's born, I, like, my son saw the doctor three times before I went in. Um, and so, yeah, six weeks after going through such a, tr- like a physical experience and, and yeah, such a, like a, a medical, the, the, the most trauma your body has probably ever undergone and like your mental health. I mean, six weeks is a long time to suffer if something is wrong and it's it seems long time. really irresponsible to just let that person float around without any help. Well, I always thought it was very strange to both my kids were C-sections and feeling like, you know, I've just had this major surgery and yet I'm not treated at all like a patient. It's sort of like buck up mom and like just power through and like also take care of this small human. And like, I, I don't know, I just feel like we would never treat men like that. If, if a man had just had, you know, major surgery, we wouldn't expect them to just buck up right away and send them home you know, with no help whatsoever. It's just very strange to me, the whole thing. Um, you know, it's like, you're, you're exactly right. It's like, you're a patient and you're handed a patient. You're like, mm-hmm. like, you're recovering and you're now in charge of something that is so helpless. It's like, it's, it's just, it feels so absurd and chaotic. But yet you're supposed to be glowing the whole time. Right, so this is right. why I think these books are so helpful. Well, one of the things I also thought was interesting is you wrote at one point about kind of, writing these different essays and experiences um, kind of in the moment. And um, it does feel so um, fresh as you're reading. I'm kind of curious how you um, approach the writing of the book and if you could share a little bit about um, your process of kind of trying to capture all of this 
um, while it was so um, clear in your mind? Sure. Yeah. So like for me personally, it was important to write it in the moment so I could try to process what I was feeling. But I also thought it would be most useful for a reader to read it in kind of real time as I was going through it, because a lot of that, like, you know, hopelessness or frustration or um, despair, you know, kind of gets sanded in retrospect. Um, so if they, if, a, if there's a pregnant woman who's looking for somebody that they recognize, um, then it's important for me to like record it in the moment so that I can be that person for them. Um, and I think especially, you know, when, when it comes to having a baby that like, if I was writing it now, I would have to go through the lens of my son to retrieve these memories. And I think like the love that I, and the relationship that I have for him now might influence and bias how I was depicting how difficult it was to bring him into the world. Um, And there might be like kind of more, you know, there, there, there would be that sheen, that like kind of lovely, like romantic sheen, unless I was writing it maybe right after he had a tantrum. Um, <laughs> to, like that would then kind of disrupt and, and, and po- like contaminate like what, what my goal, which was to be authentic and to present it exactly as it was happening. And I think that would particularly um, affect like my postpartum um, depression and like that, that fear that, cause there was a, a, a period of probably like three months, um, where I didn't feel like I loved him the way that I should. And so like, it's when I was even revising the essays that had been written in real time, I could feel this like urge to soften some of those things that I was saying, which like seem ugly to the world, you know, a mother not loving their newborn, um, and seemed like, painful to me knowing how much I loved him now, like years later. Um, So I'm really glad that I took that approach because I think there would have been a lot lost um, if I had allowed time to pass. And so like, you know, when, when you're nauseous every day for however long um, it's really hard in the moment, but sometimes like when you're, then when you've been feeling well, you forget what it's like to be unwell, to be sick Um, so I think like a lot of that needed to be protected by writing it in real time. So true. Um, did you struggle at all with, I feel like a challenge with memoir must be sort of figuring out what to include, what to leave out. Um, was it, was it difficult to sort of, um, keep things so, um, I mean, part of what's so special about the book is being, so truthful and really giving women that um, very personal but universal experience to relate to. But did you struggle at all with kind of figuring out what to include and what not to? Um, Luckily, like I am kind of like a reflex, reflexively honest person by nature. Like I, I kind of just like being um, really upfront and transparent because it just takes, it seems to take so much effort to, to be the opposite. Cause then you have to like, remember like what you, what you aren't telling, what you're leaving out of the conversation. Um, and, and so like my, my tendency is just to be really truthful. Um, so for my, for myself, it wasn't very, I, I mean, I, I guess some of the, the more, the, like the really more ugly, like, like the, the not loving my son, like that, that was hard to admit to the world. Um, and like, I have to think, you know, what if he reads this like 20 years from now? Um, will that, but 
will that, you know, hurt him? Um, so there's, there was those kinds of considerations. Um, but then there was also like considering like the other, the other people in my life, like, what will my parents think? Um, you know, if, and I experienced a little bit of that, like, cause I don't think they, they, they were here for a month after the baby was born and I don't think they realized how much I was struggling. Um, so when they read this book, um, I think that came as a surprise and like, perhaps then, you know, maybe it hurt them to know that I was struggling and not communicating it or like that they didn't notice. Um, so that, yes, there were those considerations. Um, but I thought that it was important enough to kind of contribute these stories, um, to the motherhood canon, um, that I could kind of overlook those consequences. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, for your son, you know, maybe someday down the line, he becomes a parent and might struggle in the same way or his partner could struggle in the same way. And I just think it it's so beautiful to have that written down. And then you write so wonderfully. I was like, Terry, <laughs> this morning reading some of it because I just relate so much where you're talking about those very intense um, early childhood days between a mother and a child and sort of the intimacy that you share, and but also how kind of fleeting that is. Like, um, you know, the we probably don't remember that of our own childhood and, and thinking about the fact that our kids won't either. You write, um, he won't remember me as I am now or the dearness of our time together when he was small. To realize he won't remember the fierce intimacy of these years is to know your best friend will one day forget you. And they're just, oh, just killed me. But it's, um, I just love seeing these reflections and and the way you um, just share the sort of powerful experiences and, and the way you kind of reflect on how becoming a mother had you thinking about kind of your relationship with your own mother. Can you talk about that a little bit? And if anything sort of um, surprised you as you were kind of writing and reflecting about that relationship? Yeah. Um it's really interesting because like as a child, when you're looking back at your childhood, I think like kind of the moments of strife um, plant themselves in your brain with more potency than the moments of joy, just as like a survival mechanism that like fear has that lasting quality. So like when I look back at my childhood, I I remember, you know, a lot of moments of my, of my mom being angry. um, And I I don't think it works both ways. Like I think when she looks back as she's heading, you know, into her senior years, it's her survival mechanism to dwell in the beautiful moments. Um, And so we have like such different perspectives um, just to get by, you know, like I, I'm thinking like, okay, how am I going to be different as a mother? How am I going to, you know, have create a different childhood that was like, in some ways, unlike mine, um, and not, you know, falling into patterns and, and, and learning as we all do, like taking the good and and leaving out the bad. And as she is like, you know, moving forward in her life, she wants to look back on, on, you know, the, the gilded memories. Um, and it's going to be the same for my son. So like, even though there are so many moments of frustration for like with a young kid um, and like there's so many, like, you know, just trying to negotiate with them when they're being unreasonable or if they're hungry or tired and it's so hard sometimes. Um, 
I'm not going to retain those moments as I get older because I'm going to, you know, look back on the joy that has kind of seeped into my brain and all the, the tenderness that I miss that is no longer there. Um, and he's probably going to remember, you know, the moments that I was frustrated and snapped. And so like, it's so, it's so interesting, like the takeaways that we're going to have and how we reconcile those differences um, in order to survive. So interesting. And I hadn't thought about so much of that before. Um, and I do want to mention too, I, um, I know I'm, I'm marking off so many parts that just had me thinking so deeply or um, feeling so much, but I do want to emphasize too, there were just so many times where I was just um, laughing and laughing. It's, um, it's so funny too. Um, there's a part, I'll just share one line that I was just cackling over where you're, I think, heading to the hospital. And um, he said, my parents arrived to take care of Penny, your, your dog. And my dad snaps photos of me on my way out the door, engorged as a tick and wincing. I hope he burns them or sells the images for use on an abstinence poster. <laughs> There's so many lines that just had me cackling. Um, well, you know, one of the things you also talk about is kind of how um, becoming a mother was kind of colliding with different career success. And I know you're also, um, congratulations. I know you said you're um, due again in June and um, you have a lot going on professionally. You have another book coming out in the fall, Eyes Turn Skyward. You have a, um, uh, your Mercy House book was auctioned as a television series. So I'm just kind of curious how it's been. I know um, you had said you kind of had a, a difficult pregnancy this time as well. Just I'm sure so many people can relate to just trying to navigate all of that. I'd just love to hear about kind of what's happening these days. Sure. Um, yeah, it is It is such a hard balance. And I think that is a, a universal experience. Like you never feel like you're giving your kids enough time and you never feel like you're giving your career enough time. Like every, time is just such a precious commodity. Um, and I think we're experiencing that in a whole new way um, in this pandemic age where we had, you know, a year or so at home um, where we were responsible for our childcare and our career simultaneously. It was just like insane, but also spending all that time with our children, I think created a unique bond um, that we're like still contending with. Like I know, you know, my, my husband was home for, um, for a long stretch of time. And I was home for a long stretch of time with our young child who at the time was just over a year and then into two years. Um, and like, we just ha like, we just were, we're so used to being with him all day. And I think there's kind of like an anxiety built in now or a reluctancy to like, let him go. Um, cause we're just not used to it in the way that, you know, other parents of a of, of different time. Um, so yeah, all these just like factors have compounded. So I do find it very difficult to get my writing done. Um, I have, you know, a work shift, but as um, I work at home and my son is three. And so like he can, he just comes into my room while I'm working. And like, sometimes he can just be super sweet and say like, you know, um, I just, I just needed a hug and a kiss or can I sit on your lap or, you know, things like that. And it's so hard to just, to, to, to be like, no, <laughs> no, you can't sit on my lap. No, you can't have a kiss. And, and I, I rarely do, you know, I give into it. Um, and so like, there's, you have to like build in these disruptions. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's harder to work, but it, maybe it makes, the work more focused or, you know, maybe like that kind of 
um, you know, all, all life experiences can inform story and character. So maybe I could just consider it all research. <laughs> there you go. Well, that makes me <laughs> wonder, can you tell us about Eyes Turned Skyward? What yeah. is it about? So Eyes Turn Skyward is a dual timeline novel about a middle-aged woman um, who has this kind of complex relationship with her mother. Um, she felt like her mother was never really satisfied with who she was. Um, and she discovers um, as her mother um, begins to ail in, into her el elderly age um, that she was a woman Air Force service pilot during World War II. And as she's uncovering the secret past that she can't understand why her mom kept from her, um, she kind of realizes why their relationship was what it was and um, determines to finally um, get the, her mother the, the recognition that she always deserved and to seek reconciliation before her mother passes. Oh, that sounds great. I'll really look forward to reading that. So that's fall fall of this year. That's exciting. That'll be yeah, soon. October. Nice. Um, well, I always love to end by asking um, what guests have been reading lately. Are there any books you'd want to recommend to listeners? Definitely. So I'm, I'm currently working on like a postpartum novel. Um, so w when I'm working on like a certain theme, I like to find similar themes. Um, so I've been reading a lot of like mother fiction. Um, so a few that I've read recently that really stand out. Um, one is Night Bitch. Um, I don't know if you've read it yet, but it's like, I mean, it's it's phenomenal and so strange and so good. Um, so it's about it's about this woman who has a young toddler and she turns into a dog. Um, it is just like this kind of extended metaphor, um, kind of like um, for like the wildness within a mother and like that fierceness that she tries to contain and and can't contain anymore, um, and just gives into it. Um, it's about you know like anger, um, feminist anger but also the tenderness and love for the child. And it's just such a different book and so well-written. I've got to um, read that, but on my to-be-read list forever. And actually, I wanted to mention, too, we have a, um, a shared local bookstore because I'm in the North Shore, too. I first saw that at Bookshop of Beverly Farms, which oh, is yeah. um, such a great store. Um, but I've been, meaning, yeah, I've been meaning to read that forever. It looks so good. Yeah, it's gotten a lot of great buzz and for good reason. Um, and it's, that has been optioned too, into, I think a movie. Um, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. With, um, Amy Adams is mm. the, I think like the, the producer and the, the going to be the play the main character. Um, very cool. Yeah. And then some other, um, I'm, I'm reading currently little bandage days, um, which is about a woman with young children who moves to a different country with her husband. And, um, it's kind of told in this, like, um, stream of consciousness style. Um, and we see her kind of losing um, her sanity, but from her point of view, um, which is really interesting. Um, and then another one is um, the school for good mothers, I think is what it's oh, called. Oh, that's another one I keep seeing. I've got to read. Yeah. Um, and just about like, you know, the, the mistakes that mothers make or parents in general, but mostly mothers. Um, and like this kind of authoritarian, authoritarian government, um, who, you know, observes all the mistakes and, and tries to like, kind of create, um, this ideal motherhood process and, and like the trauma on the parents and the children. 
Oh, that's great. I'll definitely link to all those. Um, and I meant to ask too, I know it sometimes takes forever. Is there any um, like firm Mercy House adaptation news or anything of, of when it's coming? It takes a long time. Um, <laughs> no, but like we are like in the process. So things are coming along. So they have the pilot written. Oh. Um, and I think that they're just looking to cast. Um, I think that was like, that's my last update. Um, oh, that's yeah. so cool. I look it's forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if um, listeners want to connect with you, I'll definitely um, link to your um, website. And is there anywhere you tend to be online the most? Uh, Instagram is probably my preferred platform. Great. So yeah. um, definitely send people there. Um, well, Elena, thank you so much. I hope that um, listeners pick up My Body is a Big Fat Temple um, and your other books. I hope they gift it um, to the women in their lives. And just thanks so much for coming on and um, for putting this book out there. I feel like... Um, it is going to have a very important place in, in what you, I like how you termed it the motherhood canon. I really like that. Thank you. Yeah. And thanks so much for having me. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit a bookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports A Bookish Home and independent bookstores. So it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash A Bookish Home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.